Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn. This week, as we kick off a brand new season, we're going to pack our bags and head to the West Coast, sunny Hollywood, and the swinging hot spot for about 30 years there, the Garden of Allah. Nick would have seen the Garden of Allah on his adventure with Aunt Harriet in that golden trip to Hollywood in the mid-1930s. The Garden of Allah was already hopping in the 19-teens and the 1920s, but only as a private residence. It gets even more popular when it opens in 1927 as a boutique hotel. But by the time our man Nick lands in Hollywood in the late 50s, the Chateau Marmont is taking over as the Garden of Allah was demolished in 1959 to make room for a strip mall. But for 30 years, the Garden of Allah is where the action was, and its place in the scene is crucial, I think, to gaining an understanding of at least how this community works in Hollywood, especially in the land of the West Coast. At this time, there are going to be tremendous changes to the industry. Before we begin our investigation today, tremendous thanks to all of you for listening, for your kind emails and most especially for our newest supporters on patreon.com slash done and done. I'm taking out my spyglass today to give tremendous thanks to Matty O, Kath W, and Rory W. Thank you so, so much for supporting the podcast, getting early and ad-free episodes, along with bonus episodes too. So much fun over in that community. Big thanks to all of our done and done supporters and to you for coming back to listen. In a previous episode, we have talked about the Beverly Hills Hotel, and you know that we're going to be talking about the Chateau Marmont, where Dominic frequently stays upon his return trips to Hollywood. But today, we are traveling to the Garden of Allah, which from its initial build as a private home to its additions, becomes a live-in community in the 1920s, all the way to its incredible farewell and goodbye party in 1959, This place hosts a 30-year non-stop party on the Sunset Strip. Let's investigate. There is a tremendously good paragraph from an author named Martin Turnbull who has written a series of fiction books about the Garden of Allah. This is the way that Turnbull describes the place. Attracting an ongoing flow of actors, writers, musicians, directors, and technicians, it could be said that the Garden of Allah evolved into a microcosm of Hollywood itself, opening at the dawn of the talkies in 1927 and closing at the dusk of the studio system in 1959. The residents of the Garden of Allah saw the unfolding of what we now fondly call the golden years of Hollywood. 
they witnessed and not insignificantly contributed to the advent of sound, the development of technicolor, the rise and subsequent decline of the power and popularity of radio, the propaganda war machine of World War II, and the battle against the onslaught of television with widescreen epics through the 1950s. No other hotel in Hollywood's fabled history could lay claim to such a central role in the evolution of the art form that, it could well be argued, came to define the century. It is this theme of community, of colony, that I want you to feel in this episode, as well as the Garden of Allah's place within the times and culture. Today, if you are bopping about on Sunset Boulevard and get to the corner of Crescent Heights Boulevard, you will see a strip mall. The actual address, if you're going to go walking around, is 8152 Sunset Boulevard. And this place is a strip mall like every other strip mall. But if you look at some of the remaining foliage around and close your eyes, you may just hear long-ago echoes of music or catch a glimpse of some of the ghosts of this property's past life, and all of the luminaries, shining lights in many, many ways that it hosted. How do we get to the Garden of Allah? The place actually begins as a private home, built by William H. Hay. William H. Hay was a prominent L.A. developer who shaped much of the development of West Hollywood in his day. In 1905, William Hay gets a big idea and he'll begin developing a tract of land, a 160-acre tract of land, situated with Sunset Boulevard to the north and Santa Monica Boulevard to the south. What was Crescent Avenue is now Fairfax Avenue to the east. You have Sweetser Avenue over to the west. And William Hay is going to call his new development Crescent Heights. Five years after beginning the development in 1910, Hay will divorce his first wife and take his second wife, Catherine, who most certainly needs a home different than his first wife. By 1913, William Hay will take three and a half acres of his land and begin building an estate on a still unpaved Sunset Boulevard. He's going to call this home Havenhurst. Construction begins in 1913. The home is completed in 1915, but for who knows what reason, William Hay decides he needs another mansion, and he will begin building that one on the location where the Director's Guild now stands. And there's Havenhurst just empty, growing dust, until it is bought by a legend. Alla Nazimova, friends, this woman is incredible. Alla was born in Yalta, Crimea which at that time was part of Russia, now part of Ukraine. Miriam Leventon is Allah's birth name. She has a terrible childhood. She will teach herself English in six months. By the mid-19-teens, Allah Nazmova is Broadway's most dramatic actress and the most popular one, too. Allah at this time has been persuaded to leave her red-hot Broadway career to come on out to Hollywood to be a star, which she does, and Allah will. By 1918, Allah Nazmova is the star of the silver screen. She is making $13,000 a week, which is $3,000 higher a week than Mary Pickford, coming in at 10 k Allah has also fought 
for the right to approve her directors, her scripts, and her leading man. Things are going pretty great, and now the hottest star of the silver screen needs some new digs, since it appears this Hollywood thing is going to work out. Ala, really a truly incredible star. She will star in 23 films in her career. She's also a breast cancer survivor. Truly a magnificent soul. And hey, early days still, she has tons of money. Ala will find the empty, abandoned Havenhurst just sitting there, three and a half acres. This home has 40 rooms with floors of teak and richly carved decorations in rosewood and pale mahogany. The finishes were all in Circassian walnut that the Hayes had collected on their trip to the Philippines in 1912. All the interior walls are covered in canvas and hand-painted. The garage has bays for not one but two cars, which is an absolute rarity in those days, along with rooms upstairs for live-in servants. Construction and landscaping for the property will cost an estimated $30,000. Alan Osmova pays $50,000 for the lease on this three and a half acres. When Hollywood, whoa, is still a very small town, there are undeveloped tracts of land everywhere. Dirt roads. And now the house that has been sitting around, she snatches up, proceeds to immediately spend another $65,000 remodeling both the interior and exterior, including one major development that will be famous attached to the name of Garden of Allah. Allah Nazmova builds a pool in the shape of the Black Sea in homage to her homeland. That pool is legendary, going to be super, super famous, that pool is. And a mention here about Paul Avano. Paul Avano is a legendary Hollywood cameraman who will design the underwater lights for this aquatic attraction. Palavano will also introduce Rudolph Valentino to Alla Nazimova, after which Valentino will be cast in her 1921 production of Camille. Alla quickly renames the home from Havenhurst to the Garden of Alla, A-L-L-A. No H yet. This refers to an enormously popular 1904 novel called The Garden of Allah, with an H, by Robert Smith Hitchens. This novel was made into a movie by David O. Selznick, starring Marlena Daytrick in the mid-1930s. Now, I want you to keep this in historical perspective, friends. Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks will purchase a remote hunting lodge that they are going to rename Pickfair in 1919. Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks will spend five years building and remodeling this home into a mock Tudor four-story, 25-room mansion. At this time, when Alla Nazmova moves into her home, the Garden of Alla, her home, is the most Western movie star home in all of Los Angeles. Beverly Hills does not really start attracting its fair share of celebrities until after Pickfair was completed in 1929. What I need you to know now, at least in the beginning, is that the Garden of Allah is a very, very private home, which is good for Allah's purposes. She will use that very private home to keep secluded from the prying eyes of Hollywood. Alla will move into the home in 1919 and proceeds to have a marvelous time. 
hosting private parties. She loves her new estate with its flower-filled gardens and Spanish house, which in the foreshadowing of the role it would soon play in Hollywood is a perfect setting for Alice liaisons with her female lovers. See, when Alla comes to Hollywood, she thinks Hollywood is backwater, which it kind of is at that point. There's no culture there. There's nothing like the places that she has seen and visited and lived in. So what does any good bohemian lady do? Alla Nazmova is going to create her own salon. And what happens weekly? (laughs) There is she entertains European expatriates. She entertains new silent screen Hollywood and all the smart and glamorous people. And just like every good salon, all that are gathered talk philosophy and literature and art and history and also drink all the booze. There's so much booze, prohibition does not stop Ala Nazimova. Ala's salons attract a large number of people following them, but one of those groups is a large lesbian following. So large and so famous that this group becomes a little bit notorious. Though married in name only, Ala Nazimova was one of a subculture of Hollywood actresses who were lesbian or bisexual. Getting together with your friends who are of that same persuasion is highly dangerous at the time. So Ala Nazimova coins what she calls sewing circles. You also hear this referred to as Lavender Hollywood or the Lavender Set. All of her female friends coming around that pool shaped like the Black Sea are doing important work, not only in each other's careers, but advancing aims in Hollywood as well that they care about. This is the first community that builds up at the Garden of Allah. Who's in this set? Famously, playwright and screenwriter Mercedes Acosta. She's an American poet, costume designer, socialite. Mercedes is best known for her frequent and often lesbian affairs with Hollywood personalities, including Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, Alan Asmova too, goodness, Isidore Duncan, and Tallulah Bankhead. Mercedes has many lovers, and she will write about some of those affairs in her controversial autobiography called Here Lies the Heart. If you're in the secret sewing circle, because that's definitely what they did when they got together was brought their knitting needles, you're going to see Eva Legallien. She's a lover of Tallulah Bankhead, too. You're going to see Tallulah Bankhead. You'll see Lillian Tashman. You will see both wives of Rudolph Valentino. Now, having been introduced to Ala Nazimova, Valentino's first wife, Jean Acker, and his second wife, Natasha Rambova, we are going to be talking about Valentino and his famous home, Falcon Lair, this season too. Put a pin in that. Ala's home, her salon, her circle, is the scene for a number of years. The place is hopping if you are cool enough to be invited. And it's the place you want to be. Exotic plants, Spanish decor, the Black Sea pool. And now the Garden of Allah is beginning sort of its infamous legendary legacy, even though it's just starting its journey. It has glamour and jazz and booze, and it's still a private home. This is just Allah's extra super fabulous bohemian gal party with all of her friends and everything's really cool. 
for a while. In a few short years, though, by 1921, Hollywood and its success story has turned the cards on our fair heroine, Alla Nazmova. Talkies are coming fast and furious, and her silent films aren't doing as well. Her contract ends with the studio, and Alla will invest in some independent movies, which honestly turn out to be duds. By 1926, Alla is pretty financially on the skids. And her manager convinces her to take some outside investors. He has this big idea and he's like, hey, your bohemian parties are awesome, but you could just turn this place into a hotel. Hollywood is booming. This area is getting developed. You could make a fortune doing what you're already doing and be able to bring in a steady income. Alan Asmova readily agrees. Sounds like a great idea. And here comes a couple, Jean and John Adams, that say to Allah, we can do all of this for you. Allah will leave them with most all of her cash on hand to clear the land and build 25 two-story villas. This number will later be expanded to 30. And Allah Nazmova hits the road to revive her once illustrious theater career and make a little bit more cash. She's going to need it. You all hope it's going to go great for her, but grifters are going to grift. And it turns out that John and Jean Adams are grifters. The Adamses are going to bilk Alla out of every dime she has going to this project. And by the time the hotel opens in January of 1927, the Adamses have split town. But the hotel can open, and it does, January 9th, 1927, with an 18-hour opening night party. This gala looks like a film premiere. Her good friend and occasional lover, Marlena Daytrick, is there. So is Sam Goldwyn. The party includes greeters in swallowtail coats and striped pants. Thousands of looky-loos come to the party. They are staring open-mouthed at the rooms, the two-story bungalows, as well as the pool shaped like the Black Sea. There's a string quartet playing in the lobby. Butlers are serving tea and punch and sandwiches. 18 hours, you gotta hit a nightfall. When night descends, visitors are astonished at the colored lights hanging all over the property, illuminating the grounds. There are costumed troubadours wandering around, singing with their guitars. Close your eyes, can't you just smell the night-blooming jasmine? The all-out theatricality of this place, as you can imagine, causes a pretty significant buzz around Hollywood. The opening of the Garden of Allah becomes headline news in the papers, and Hollywood is going to want to be there. Smartly enough as well, Allah, promoting her new business, sends out a brochure. It's beautifully printed. It's sent to all the Hollywood studios, bigwigs, and staff. It reads, California's finest summer hotel in Hollywood. In the Garden of Allah, there are 30 individual bungalows, exquisitely furnished and offering you a delightful home with complete hotel service. A magnificent swimming pool surrounded by a semi-tropical paradise transforms your bungalow into a delightful beach home in the center of Hollywood. In this alluring atmosphere of the tropics, you may dine under the stars. Just the place for that breakfast by the pool, bridge at lunch, and a dinner party. 
you will appreciate the atmosphere of exclusive refinement in this garden of wonderful homes. It is truly a gem of comfort in a setting of romance. Sounds pretty great, right? With a write-up like that, Garden of Allah does kind of become an overnight success and will continue to be legendary for the next 30 years or so, but truthfully, the bungalows have thin walls and the food may not be particularly terrific and the gardens are pretty great. Luxuries, though, very much on the surface. It's a little bit gilded. The luxury is not in the goods or the place per se. The luxury is in the community and the scene. Because there's a whole legion of people in the 1920s and 1930s with no permanent housing. Hollywood has not been developed yet. Just remember, Alan Asmova at this point is flat broke. But on reputation alone, the Garden of Allah opens and becomes pretty popular. It's new, it's fresh, and Crescent Heights is now an area that is coming into prominence. Pickfair has been completed as well two years before. Additionally, right catty corner to the Garden of Allah, in 1926, there are plans underway for a new establishment to stay called the Chateau Marmont. It's in development, and the Chateau Marmont will be finished by 1929. People do come to the Garden of Allah and stay for long lengths of time. They stay there either when they're on their way up or on their way down. The place is secluded. It has a discreet security staff. Even though the property is enclosed, there are numerous entrances and exits that can get you off the property pretty quick if you need to make an escape. Bar service really is impressive here. Bar service can get you set up for your party with a staff of seven in five minutes or less. All the movers, all the shakers, staying at the Garden of Allah. And it's very quaint and cozy. You can stay long-term or short-term. And the main house is a hotel with rooms and service. And the rest of the property is all those bungalows. It's its own little village. It's its own little community. And the management's like, hey, we got you. Nobody judges. Nobody interferes. Security is discreet and tight-lipped. And a lot of people with some colorful lives and plot lines will twist in and out of the Garden of Allah for the next three decades. We're going to hear about some of the most notable luminaries who float in and out of the Garden of Allah in those next three decades when we come back from break. And it is in the late 1920s, silent films are done and talkies really are happening. And Hollywood needs writers, big time. So all kinds of writers are getting lured out to Hollywood with the temptation of some pretty sweet paydays. And they come out and holy cats, all my friends are here too. We are going to be talking about a number of writers in this episode, including F. Scott Fitzgerald and the Algonquin Roundtable set. Dorothy Parker in just a few short years will amusingly place a chenille welcome mat on each side of her bed when she stays at the Garden of Allah. I need to let you know that the writers do not necessarily behave any better than the actors or the film crews. But Alan Asmova at this point is still flat broke, and she cannot financially sustain the hotel despite the hotel's popularity, and she will quickly find herself again in dire financial straits. Remember, the Adamses have gone. 
With all of her cash, she makes a little cash, but not enough to sustain the business. She's lost every single dollar she has, but Alan Asmova is not one to sit around and cry. On July 17, 1928, Allah will sell the Garden of Allah back to William Hay. He will pay her $80,000, but in that transaction will deduct any debts accrued by John and Jean Adams. So poor Allah, with the $250,000 that she has put into the property between building additions, bungalows, the pool, landscaping, she ends up from her sellout of the hotel with about $7,500. Little tragic there, William Hay will install a management company and he will continue to run the Garden of Allah until June of 1930 when he will sell his interest to the Central Holding Corporation. This is when the extra H gets added on to the Garden of Allah. The original Allah, Nazmova, does not approve of this particular change in the nomenclature, but the hotel's glory years will begin here. Allah, again, pretty broke 7500 bucks. One of the deals that is worked out, which is a bonus to her, is that she is granted permanent residence on the property. She's given a bungalow. She's able to resume her notorious soirees with Marlena and Greta and all of her other sewing circle lavender set. Alla decides now that the hotel is in good hands anyway, she can hit the road and do some more career stuff. When Alla Nazmova comes back to Hollywood in 1938, she is given villa number 24 at the hotel, and she will live there until her death in July of 1945. But the Garden of Allah, y'all, whoa, it is lit. It is the place to be, and it's going to stay that way for a long time. As a report in the Middlesbrough Daily News phrases it, the Garden of Allah was, quote, the roaringest oasis in the roaring Hollywood of the 1920s and 1930s, unquote. One early resident will recall about this time period, there were no rules. Nearly everybody partied and partied hard. You would come back late at night and look around for a lit window. That meant a party where, of course, you'd be welcome. Go ahead and begin in the late 1920s here. Even in 1927, from the beginning of the opening, Clara Bow, the famous silent film star, is about 22 years old. Clara Bow has a very protective father, and she will flat out lie to her protective dad saying that she's going over to her friend Joan Crawford's house. Clara Bow is not actually going to her friend Joan Crawford's house. Clara Bow is driving to the USC campus to pick up her friends from the football team and promptly escort them to the secret room that she maintains at the Garden of Allah Hotel. When they're there, naturally, they party the night away. want to tell you that Clara Bow, the it girl, becomes the first and most famous for her poolside escapades at the Garden of Allah. She is known often to dive into the cool water of that Black Sea pool in her evening dress with a martini in her hand, diving off the diving board. Clara Bow is the lady who will make these late-night pool parties, both dressed and undressed, with alcohol or not, a real thing in the legend of the Garden of Allah. The 1930s do come to Hollywood, and again, talkies are a thing. 
And if you have scripts now that movies are running by, you're going to need writers. You're going to need a lot of writers. And writers, along with composers and costume artists and camera persons, all still need a place to crash. And by the beginning of the 30s, West Hollywood is building up around this part of Sunset. People are moving into the Garden of Allah for short or long-term housing. And once you're in the community, why would you want to leave? As parties around the town wind down, the after-party is always at the Garden of Allah. Tallulah Bankhead, one of my favorites, will arrive in the summer of 1933, where sexual exploits at the Garden of Allah increase a lot. Tallulah Bankhead idolizes Allah Nazmova, and her conquest while at the Garden are rumored to have included Stanwyck, Dolores Del Rio, as well as Joan Crawford. Even a very young Gary Cooper is spotted one night, nude, coming out of the pool and racing straight to Tallulah Bankhead's bungalow. Ginger Rogers famously paired with Fred Astaire in nine musical films between 1933 and 1939. Ginger Rogers will live at the Garden of Allah in a two-bedroom bungalow with her mother once she arrives in Hollywood in 1932. She likes the place and recalls that it gave us the needed feeling of home. Charles Lawton, about the same time, is filming a remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Charles Lawton would return home to the garden for lunch, still dressed as Quasimodo, and float in the pool on his back with his face aimed skyward to avoid ruining his makeup. Everybody needs a little pool dip in the afternoon, and again, nothing is off limits at the Garden of Allah. For my Trashy Divorces listeners, this is a fun one. We're going to be talking about the scandalous Trashy Divorces of Mary Astor in short order. Mary Astor in 1936 is going through quite a scandal. She has been having a raucous affair with the noted playwright, as well as philandering ladies' man, George Kaufman. George Kaufman is living at the Garden of Allah when he finds himself in the center of her child custody scandal. The Purple Diary legend is immense and not the story for today, but again, stay tuned on that for Trashy Divorces. Goodness, Johnny Weissmuller, famous for his String of Tarzan films, will entertain many Janes in his time at the Garden of Allah. There is a famous Broadway actress who will answer her bungalow door, fully nude, while her pet monkey gleefully receives packages and telegrams for her. Marlena Dietrich loves swimming in that pool, nude as well. I mean, she's been there a lot. It's kind of like a second home at this point, so why not? F. Scott Fitzgerald comes to the Garden of Allah in 1937. He has safely tucked his sweet wife Zelda into another sanitarium, and here comes F. Scott to write for the talkies, the movies, but he's also having his secret affair liaison with Sheila Graham, who is also his biographer. Sheila Graham will write a book about the Garden of Allah, as well as about F. Scott Fitzgerald. Sheila Graham's quite a good writer, but again, another story, another podcast. (laughs) Thomas Wolfe, famous author, friend of F. Scott Fitzgerald, will write to him, I'll be damned if I believe anyone lives in a place called the Garden of Allah. The Garden of Allah famously is also the site of the last meeting between F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. 
Ernest Hemingway will stay at the Garden of Allah when he comes to Hollywood to promote his documentary on the Spanish Civil War. Of this last meeting at the Garden of Allah, Fitzgerald says, I talk with the authority of failure, Ernest with the authority of success. We could never sit across the table again. F. Scott Fitzgerald will die elsewhere in Hollywood, but he does a significant amount of writing at the Garden of Allah with his unfinished novel, The Last Tycoon, started with the inspiration of Wonderkin director Irving Thalberg. Gore Vidal will recall his time at the Garden of Allah. He will say, ah, yes, the Garden of Allah. I used to stay there because of Sam Zimbalist, my MGM producer, who was Alan Nazimova's pet, even though she was absolutely the queen of the dykes. We worked on Ben-Hur there, but my cabin was next to Errol Flynn's, and his day began at midnight, so I had to move out because of all the shrieks and splashes from the pool. The 1940s do come a-callin', and now the Algonquin Roundtable set are going to leave their mark in Hollywood. Kevin Starr will write in his work, The Dream Endures, that the hotel brought to its portion of Sunset Boulevard the wit and spirit together with the drinking of the Algonquin Circle of New York. (laughs) Transportation at the Garden of Allah, always unusual. Robert Benchley has a wheelbarrow that he keeps outside of his bungalow because it's so much easier to be transported from party to party when you're on, you know, wheels. Much easier than to walk over to the next bungalow. Robert Benchley is the king of the party set during this time, when all of his highfalutin Algonquin friends, Dorothy Parker, Alexander Woolcott, Johnny McLean, will all move into poolside villas. Alexander Woolcott, one of the famous members of the Algonquin Roundtable, will remark upon visiting that the Garden of Allah was the kind of village you might look for down the rabbit hole. It was here at the Garden of Allah that Robert Benchley makes his famous comment, I've got to get out of these wet clothes and into a dry martini. (laughs) This happens when he is caught in a rainstorm or thrown into the pool, depending on which account you believe. Lucius Beebe also notes that the garden catered to the best dressed and the best undressed. Oh, speaking of transportation, John Barrymore will keep a bicycle outside of his villa so he could get himself quickly to nearby parties. I guess he didn't want to go the wheelbarrow route. Legendary actor Humphrey Bogart will have an extended stay at the Garden of Allah. On a particularly notable night, Humphrey Bogart is attacked by his estranged wife with a kitchen knife when she gets wind that he is fooling around with a young Lauren Bacall, who is also staying at the Garden of Allah in a bungalow next door to Humphrey's. Lauren Bacall will escape out the back door of Humphrey's bungalow, much to the amusement of all the other residents who all know what's going down between Humphrey and Lauren. Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner will have many of their earliest dalliances at the Garden of Allah, too. Benny Goodman comes to stay. Eartha Kitt comes to stay. Even Leopold Stokowski, just a few years before he will marry Gloria Vanderbilt, Back in the early 1940s, he's at the Garden of Allah when he's doing his portion of the music for Disney's Fantasia. I would be utterly remiss if I did not mention the once and future President Ronald Reagan, 
who all the way back in the late 1940s, when his marriage to Jane Wyman is going bust, Ronald Reagan will stay at the Garden of Allah, where his lifestyle of doing exactly what he wants to do can continue with no interruptions and, again, very little travel time to get to the booze and the ladies. There's a lot of booze, there's a lot of ladies. Ronald Reagan will say, I woke up one morning and I couldn't remember the name of the gal I was in bed with. In some weird twist of spiderweb history here, I want you to know that Ala Nazimova is Nancy Davis's godmother. She's already pretty familiar with the place. Skipping along as we get to the last decade of the Garden of Allah, in the 1950s, drugs are going to become more prevalent, eventually replacing alcohol as the preferred choice of recreational activity. Both Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield are known about the place. They both love to dance on the sunken dance floor with marijuana haze all around them. Again, there's not a lot of rules at the Garden of Allah. But after 20 plus years of operation, the place is getting a little run down. And by now, the area is very much built up around the Garden of Allah, even though it's still its own private oasis. But even private oasises can be infiltrated and crime is on the rise. Bungalows are often burgled now. The mob is even using this place for its escapades. Sex work is prevalent. There's always ways that you can attain blackmail material at the Garden of Allah. By the end of the 1950s, the Garden of Allah is run down, kind of seedy. Los Angeles is spread out and people are actually living there now. And the need for a place like this with the end of the studio system just isn't quite as prevalent as it was in earlier decades. Additionally, there are nicer places that the stars are going to now. James Dean and Montgomery Cliff are choosing the Chateau Marmont over the Garden of Allah. You've got the Beverly Hills Hotel as well. The garden at this point has lost a bit of its luster, and the property ends up becoming more valuable for its land as opposed to its buildings or legacy. It is in 1959 that the finance man Bart Litton, who is the president of Litton Savings and Loan, will announce that he has bought the Garden of Allah property and all of its contents to make a main new branch of his fancy bank. He buys it all, lock, stock, and barrel for a price of $775,000. And the party at the Garden of Allah is about to wind down, but not without a rager of a farewell party. Guests show up in costumes, dressed from their favorite star of decades past. Alan Osmova's 1923 silent movie Salome is played on the big screen by that pool shaped like the Black Sea. An enormous party is had by all. Soon after, from Bart Lighton, follows an auction. Every bit of furniture, tables, beddings, dishes, plates, all the way down to the ashtrays are all auctioned off and sold. Souvenir hunters are picking up fantastic bargains with a provenance of being attached to the most rocking party in Hollywood of the last three decades. Turns out, though, that the property is going to be sold to yet another developer who will tear it down and pave paradise to put up a parking lot. Bulldozer comes in, and just like that, Hollywood's most notorious party spot is 
Gone with the Wind. It is rumored that the Joni Mitchell song, Big Yellow Taxi, is about the Garden of Allah. I would like to dispel this rumor for you. Joni Mitchell will say in 1966 in an interview with the Los Angeles Times, I wrote Big Yellow Taxi on my first trip to Hawaii. I took a taxi to the hotel, and when I woke up the next morning, I threw back the curtains and saw these beautiful green mountains in the distance. Then I looked down, and there was a parking lot as far as the eye could see, and it broke my heart, this blight on paradise. That's when I sat down and wrote the song. So don't believe that rumor. Big Yellow Taxi is not about the Garden of Allah, but I can see how it would be easy to confuse the two. Did I mention that the Garden of Allah was situated right at the base of Laurel Canyon? Oh, Laurel Canyon, those stories are going to come for you so soon as well. As we close out our investigation today, I do have a few more choice quotes about the place and its legacy. In 1959 in Time Magazine, Lucius Beebe says this about the hotel's activity. Nothing interrupted the continual tumult that was life at the Garden of Allah. Now and then, the men in white came with a van and took somebody away, or bankruptcy or divorce or even jail claimed a participant in its strictly unstately sarabands. Nobody paid any mind. There's a famous architectural writer, Walt Lockley. His summation is, Not everybody who went to the Garden of Allah wanted to be seen. Somehow among the tangle of phony marriages, the fistfights, the volume of liquor, the high-powered, insecure, and spoiled celebrities, recreational sex, drugs, robberies, drunken rages, cross-gender liaisons, orgies, ego feuds, money problems, and sudden changes of plan, the Garden of Allah acquired a bohemian reputation. A reputation for hedonism. Imagine that. The blog Hollywood Lost and Found, I think, puts it best as we sum up today. Whatever the reason for the visit, the Garden of Allah was an escape from reality for those whose job it was to provide that escape for everyone else. Oh, the lore and legacy of old Hollywood. I think I love it as much as our man Nick did. I hope you were given a little bit of a way to escape in this episode. Thank you so, so much for listening and for all your kind support of Done and Done. We will be back next Monday on your next Dunday for a brand new episode. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.